going to continue to worship him together as we study his word. So I hope you have a Bible and you can get to the New Testament book of Galatians. That's where we're going to be this morning, Galatians chapter 3, toward the end of chapter 3. Just start turning there. Um, If you're new to us this morning, welcome to all our guests. And uh, if you haven't been tracking along, we're in a series right now called Imago Day. We've got one week left. And we've been asking the question, what does it mean that we've been made in the image of God, in the likeness of God? What does it look like to value his image in all human beings, image bearers? And what does it look like for us to reflect his image as we live in this world uh, for the glory of Christ? So that's what we've been exploring these past few weeks, and we continue this week as we look at adoption and care for orphans. And if you would follow along as I read uh, in verse 25. Just before I do that, let me just say, so the, the plan is and hope is that next week when we close this series, uh, we will have some ways, we'll give you some handles. What does it look like for us to take a deeper step into some of these areas and, and pursue deeper conversation in these matters? So we hope to offer you some handles and practical uh, forward movement next week. All right, Galatians 2, or rather 3, beginning in verse 25. If you follow along, I'll start reading there. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he's under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. So it's one thing to grip God's word and it's another to be gripped by God's word. Scripture is so clear on God's heart for the care of orphans and I've never, personally, I've never been a part of a faith family um, in my life that is more gripped by this truth of God's word, this, this aspect of God's character than this church. It has affected us. We weren't here for practically five minutes in March of 2012 before we realized, oh, this is a pulse in this church. This is something our, our brothers and sisters here are passionate about. And I hope that passion doesn't go away. Matter of fact, I hope to stoke it as we study God's word here this morning. God's word does not allow us to treat orphan care as a side project for a select few. 
Orphan care is the work of the church. Orphan care is a gospel issue. It is an element of the mission of the gospel. It's so close to the heart of God that when we read scripture, James, the brother of Jesus, makes one's care for orphans an index, a a telltale sign, a litmus test of whether or not we actually get the gospel. If the gospel is coursing through our veins, James says, I want to see it and how you care for orphans. Here are his words. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. What would you say it is? Here's what James says. Show me the way you care for orphans. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So to grasp Imago Dei is both to value image bearers, because we've said this all along, we can't honor God and dishonor those who bear his image. So it's to value image bearers and ascribe dignity and worth to them as those created in the image of God. But on the other hand, it's also for our part as Christians to imitate and reflect God's character. And then that leads to the question, that begs the question, what is God like? And you read throughout scripture and God and the Old Testament prophets and and through the Psalms, right? We see God saying, I am a father to the fatherless. I'm the kind of God who runs to defend the orphan. I'm the God who answers the cry of the afflicted. So if we want to reflect the character of our God, we answer the cries of the afflicted. We run to the fatherless. We run to the orphan. We defend them. And the need and the plight of the orphan is not just a situation in the ancient world bubbling up out of the pages of scripture. It is still an issue today. So there's no way to wrap uh, our head around numbers like this. Around the world right now, as Didi was just praying a moment ago, there are somewhere approximating 150 million orphans many on the precipice of survival because it's just one parent is trying to come up with money and finances and provision and food and safety for the child. 15 million are double orphans, have neither one of their parents. That's around the world, and then you come into the United States right now, we've got over 400,000 children in the foster care system in our country. Over 100,000 of those kids are waiting to be adopted. Why? Because in their case, reunification with their birth parents isn't possible. Parents' rights have been terminated. There's no next of kin. 100,000 kids, right? Right here in Alabama, 6,000 kids in foster care. 6,000 kids will go to bed tonight uncertain about their future. 6,000 kids potentially going to bed tonight and they're not gonna get to hear from somebody, I love you and know that person's gonna be there tomorrow night and the night after and the night after. The, The doctrine of Imago Dei tells us all those numbers aren't numbers. That's not stats, those are image bearers. Bearing his image in their souls, they are precious to God, they have names. In this passage, I I hope what this passage is gonna do for us, I believe this is what God's intention 
was in putting it in his word is to create a gospel impulse in the church of Jesus Christ. To see orphan care isn't some theoretical abstract concept. It's built into the very story of you and me. It's built into the story of what God has done for us as followers of Jesus Christ. So gospel-fueled orphan care reckons with three realities we're going to talk about this morning. The first is this. We've been given a name. We've been given a name. So if you remember from our study in Ephesians, we saw in Ephesians chapter two that there was this massive wall erected between two groups of people. On one side of the wall were Jews, on the other side of the wall were non-Jews. The non-Jews are called Gentiles. So Jews and Gentiles, nobody climbed over the wall. There's this massive wall of division. And Paul is speaking to a church that's largely constituted of Gentile believers non-Jew believers, and he's giving them a new identity. He's telling these Gentile believers, your sons, your full-fledged family members in the covenant household. And the thing is, many of the Gentile believers didn't understand that. They, they didn't fully grasp it. And to be honest with you, their Jewish brothers and sisters weren't helping all that much, weren't helping them to grasp you and me are Brothers in Christ, there's no distinction in the household of faith. We're equals. You know, if you come to our house um, in our living room, we have a couple chairs in the corner of the room, and, and there's a little table between those chairs, and there's a stack of photo albums right there. And you could pull that out, and you could just... You could just follow the Mason story as it's developed from one child to another from 1998 when Hunter was born. You've got one there with our wedding pictures in 1996. So you could just kind of follow and track the whole story of the growth of our family. In a sense, the historical books of the Old Testament, that's Israel's photo album. And that's them. You can almost imagine them. The, the church gathered together and they go over to that table and they pull out the photo album and they're flipping through and they're saying, oh, look at this one. This is when we were a baby. That's when God went up to Abraham, the patriarch of the entire family, and he called him out. This was an awesome moment in our history. Wow, what a great day. And then they flip over and they're like, oh, this was embarrassing. This is when we face planted into Mount Sinai. This is a golden calf. This was not our finest moment, right? They're flipping, pay. oh, this is Joshua. And they Joshua the bat. They start singing, right? This is just rousing celebration of the history of God and his people the Israelites, and you can imagine these Gentile believers brand new in the faith, and they're third wheeling the whole time. They might be looking over their shoulders, and are there any pictures of any Amalekites in there who aren't getting destroyed? Are there any pictures of Philistines in there who aren't villains? Are, are there any pictures of me, of, of my ancestors, my, my people? Are we in the family photo album? And the reason that so many Gentile believers are reading this letter to the Galatians is because Paul is reminding them, look, from the beginning, God wanted a multi-ethnic, multinational, huge family. And he didn't just want Jews like me. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He wanted Gentiles in his family as sons and daughters of the king. That was the that was the plan from the beginning. It wasn't plan B. It was at the start. That's what God wanted. You know, the, the Jews were cool with God adopting Gentiles into the family as long as when God introduced that family to the world, he said, now these are my biologicals and these are my adopted children. These are, these are new. These ones are, have the pictures and the photo albums and 
3,000 years of history with me, right? And it's like the, it's like the Jews were saying, do, when, do, when do we get to start creating a photo album with our family? And, and Paul says something shocking in Galatians 3 and 4. He says, you do have a photo album. This is your photo album. This same photo album, this is your family history. This guy in Genesis chapter 12 named Abram, that's your dad because this is a family of faith. It's not just a genetic thing. It's a family that's a family by virtue of the promise. These have all trusted in the promise of God. You've trusted in the promise of God. We're family through our father Abraham. Look at the words. It's right there in chapter 3, verse 28. Shocking words. There is no Jew or Greek in God's house, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you Gentiles are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. That's just stunning that Paul would say that. What is, what is Paul essentially doing in chapter 3, verse 28 and 29? He's singing the old song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord together. We're all family in Christ together. Adoption, in other words, what becomes so clear in this text is adoption confers full family status to all the children. And Paul goes on to say this, it's in our notes, the purpose of the incarnation was adoption. It's why the angels sang over Bethlehem. It's, it's why we have Christmas. Jesus came into the world to get you, to get me into his family. Look at chapter four, verse four and five. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, that's referring to his, his blood will be shed for those under the law, that is under the law of sin, under the law of the curse, and he redeems those under that law for what end? So that we might receive adoption as sons. You think of the price of our adoption. Some of you members of this faith family, you've adopted internationally and you have realized that there is an intensive, there is an extensive, and there is an expensive part of this process. It involves all kinds of things, and not least of which you get a passport, you pack your bags, you travel to the other side of the world, you go to Ethiopia, you go to some place. We've got friends this very moment that they are in Colombia trying to take the next step in their adoption journey. And you do all that, you, and then once you get there, you spend more money. Once you get there, you do more work so that you can bring the child home. And verse 5 tells us, Christian, the father sent his son a long way to come and get you, and once he got there, it became even more expensive. What was the price of your adoption? The life of God's firstborn son. As a Christian, adoption is your story, and sonship is your identity. What do we see in our passage? We see a name, we see a cry a cry. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, 
Abba, Father. I want to read this story uh, related by Russ Moore who writes on this topic and speaks on this topic in a number of helpful ways. He shares this story from their own adoption journey. The creepiest sound I've ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped the silence continued as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergey, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like. But neither boy made a sound. Each time we visited them, we read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye, as by law we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears, and that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and a mother now. What is Paul telling us about the story of our salvation? He's telling us that Abba Father is not some sweet, sentimental, gushing feeling. It's not just some subjective whisper in your soul. It is the scream of you and me, orphans in this world, crying out the moment we realized someone came for me. He came for me, and I'm going to cry out because I feel like for the first time in my life, there's someone there who's going to listen. The Spirit says, yes, that's why I put the word Abba in your mouth. Your very first word was to cry Abba because now you know you have one. You have a father and he loves you. Now, that doesn't mean that once we're adopted into the family of God, it's a perfect family to be adopted into. God is the perfect father, right? That doesn't mean we're not going to struggle with assurance of the father's love. 
For 2,000 years, God's children have struggled with assurance. Why? Well, you think about it. Adopted children into the family of a perfect father, and we look at our father, and then we look in the mirror, and then an accusing voice comes into our ear and says, if that's really your father, how come you don't look alike? How come you don't have his eyes? You look so different from your father. And over against every accusing voice of the enemy, the, the, the accusing voice on the inside, the accusing voices on the outside, God shouts over his children in Galatians 4, verse 7, you're not slaves, you're sons. You're mine. And if sons, he says, then heirs. But why does Paul say your sons and not your sons and daughters, given the fact that there are going to be male and female children in the household of faith? Well, why does he say you're, you're not slaves, you're sons? Because of this. Only males could inherit the family estate. And we know right in the ancient world, the bulk of the inheritance fell to which son? The oldest son, the firstborn son, the favored son. My, my dad's dad, my grandpa Harold, uh, we didn't see him as much as we saw my other grandparents because my other grandparents lived in New Orleans with us. Grandpa Harold and Nanny, they lived in Shawnee, Oklahoma. So when we would go up there, but I remember going up there and sitting at the table with Grandpa Harold and just hearing him tell stories. And he told them like they were true. He talked about, you know, walking with two panthers in Washington. And I was like, at the time, I'm like, my grandpa walked with two panthers on either side. He's just petting there. He was making all this up, right? Just making these stories up. But he was hilariously funny. I just remember both of us pounding the table in his kitchen, just holding my sides, laughing. And I secretly thought, I'm his favorite, like, I'm, I guarantee you he likes me better than my sister and my brother. And I just expected, the more we laughed and enjoyed each other at the table, I just expected. At any moment, my grandma, Nanny, is going to walk up and lean over and whisper in my ear and say, you're his favorite. I just thought that's definitely what's going to happen. Well, Paul, what does Paul do? He's saying to these Gentile kids, newly under the covenantal roof, he's saying, you're sons, but you're not just sons. You're the oldest you're the heir. You're his favorite. And he doesn't say that to demote the Jewish brothers and sisters. He's saying it to bring the Gentiles all the way up to full-fledged family status. You're right up here. We're all here together, loved by our Father. I'm helped by this quote, article called, What Adoption Has Taught Me. Russ Moore writes, Adopted is a past tense verb, not an adjective. There is no such thing in God's economy as an adopted child, only a child who was adopted into the family. Adopted defines how you came into the household, but it doesn't define you as some other sort of family member. For 2,000 years, God's children have struggled with assurance. And for 2,000 years, the Father has been saying, I'll never let you go. You ever wonder why we have a New Testament so replete with the affirmation of God? 
with his love for us, with nothing can ever separate you, no one can snatch you from my hand. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm preparing a place for you, right? He's just constantly, even his own son Jesus shows up in the water. It's before he's been crucified, before he's been rejected, it's before he's worked any miracles. He's just wet in the water and God says, that's my boy. I'm well pleased with him, he announces on day one. That's the way the father talks about his children. That's the way the father talks to his children. He never tires of speaking words of blessing and affirmation and affection and promise to his children. The question is, if we understand all that, if we understand the doctrine of adoption, what does that do to us? A name, a cry, and a commission. Commission. There was a, a popular country song that came out about 15 years ago. It was actually a lullaby in which a mother sang to her baby these words in the chorus, how long do you want to be loved is forever enough. And that's what God says to us in the gospel. How long do you want to be loved is forever enough. The question is what kind of impulse does that create in the heart of a believer when you hear that day after day after day? It creates an impulse to speak those same kinds of words to those who long to hear them. God uses rescued orphans to rescue orphans. That's the story of Galatians chapter three and four. God uses rescued orphans to rescue orphans. That doesn't make us saviors, it makes us stewards. We drink deeply from the wells of salvation and then we fill up both pitchers and we bring that drink to others so they might have some as well. That's the shape of gospel ministry. Look, adoption can't just be a metaphor. It has to be a mission. That's what we see in God's word. That's what we see in this text. I heard a dad, he shared a story, a powerful story of how their family added two siblings who they were caring for in a foster care relationship for some time and how they added these two sisters to their family. It was a four-year-old girl and a nine-year-old girl. And the nine-year-old had the most memories of their past and the most trauma. And, and she had more behavioral difficulties and it was more visible. And every home that they went to, they... They just wanted her younger sister, but they didn't want her. And she felt this weight of shame and this weight of rejection. And as this dad got to know this child, um, he asked her one day, what's the hardest thing? And she said, nobody wants me. And she, she reached for a word. She said, I, I, don't, I don't fit anywhere. And they would eventually adopt both of these girls, but before that was finalized, they had a member of their church come over one day to their house, and they were all together, everybody was there, and this member of their church family just took pictures of all of them together, the whole group, and secretly they had that picture changed into or converted into a puzzle. And on the day that they got full custody and they came back from the court hearing, the, the puzzle was there on the table and it was, it was totally, it was fully assembled except for two pieces. Two pieces were set there on the side and as they walked toward the kitchen table, all of them together, the dad said, what's missing? 
And the two girls said, us. And they, they reached over each one and they grabbed their face that was missing and they put the piece in the puzzle. And as they put it in, the wife said, does it look like you fit now? It's a beautiful story. That's, that's, that's a gospel-rich picture. Now look, adoptive and foster care families who are in this church, and there are many, we'll talk about that in a moment, but they would be quick to say, look, not all the stories feel like that. There are sweet stories, but there are days where you just cry your eyes out. There are incredibly hard moments, moments where you're desperate for the grace of God, desperate for him to sustain you through difficult circumstances. I I thought of so many of our Brook Hills adoptive and foster families in this reality because they could tell us in a knowing way this next point in our notes, all true gospel work in the world is messy work. I thought of their example when I read this quote this week. We are all too familiar with walking the road to self-promotion, self-exaltation, and self-service. But the most astonishing sight on that road, a king who passes us moving in the exact opposite direction to self-abasement, self-giving, and self-sacrifice. And here's where this commission that we're talking about has to be heard by the entire church, not just by a select few, because it takes a whole church to adopt a child. In the first century, babies were often exposed. What that meant is just that the parent or the household servant would carry an unwanted child just out somewhere and they would just drop the child off. Oftentimes they would walk into the woods and they would just leave the child and just the elements or the animals and, and that's how it would go down. The, the children were exposed and you know what the Christians, the early Christians started doing? They started walking through the woods, listening. Any, any sound, any cry, any coo, anything, and they go running and they would pick the child up and bring the child home and make this child their own. In Ephesus, it said that children were often left in the, the agora, the marketplace. They were just left in the marketplace with no one to tend or care for them. And the, the reason that the nursery kept growing at the gathering of the church at Ephesus is because the group of people who kept picking up those kids in the marketplace were Christians. So the nursery, the preschool, just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, why did they keep doing that? What was motivating them to do that? Well, remember when we studied the book of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter one, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. That's what explains it. In other words, the Christians in Ephesus heard God say, How long do you want to be loved? Is forever enough? And it created this impulse of love to run in the direction of these children. Look, that that story continues through. In the Middle Ages, often churches had an exterior wall literally on the building, and it was a baby hatch. It was called a foundling wheel. And a desperate mother who could not keep her child safe or fed would go in the cover of night with anonymity and without being criminalized and could go and open that foundling wheel, open that little hatch, and inside there was a soft, warm bed for her child. And she could put the child in the bed and then close it, and it would latch and it would lock, and then she could ring a bell 
and the nuns would come running. It's the impulse of the church. What are we doing as a congregation about the orphan crisis in our world and in our city? We have small groups, we have RAP volunteers, W-R-A-P, wrapping around adoptive and foster families. With what? With prayer, with meals, with I'll run errands for you, with uh, right tutoring and toys and clothing and all these things. That's what RAP families do. We have urgent uh, partnerships and agency partners, judges, attorneys, social workers, trauma counselors, all doing and using their skills and abilities and training to be a blessing to children, to be a blessing to adoptive families on this journey. We have an amazing quilting ministry. They've, they've made 190 quilts for foster children in the last five years, making and monogramming these quilts for foster children. Beautiful gospel work is being done. In other words, I say all that just to say, we have a foundling wheel. It's not connected to the actual physical building, but the people of our congregation are leaning into this. We have at least, this is conservative, 70 adoptive families active. In the past five years, Brook Hills member Jeanette Thompson has finalized 139 adoptions. 31 of them are Brook Hills family. 112 of those were foster adoptions, and 20 of those were Brook Hills families. Partnership with Lifesong, We've helped fund 54 international and domestic adoptions in 12 different countries. Many are already involved. Many are, are all in. But more are needed. It takes the whole church to adopt a, chil- a child. Let, let, me, let me be as concrete as I can be. Um, we're a church of thousands. As of August 31st, there are 155 kids in foster care in Shelby County. The average number of days that a child will stay in care is 618 days. That's 618 nights wondering, if I cried, would anyone hear me? Is anybody walking in the woods listening for me? Church, how we express God's heart for orphans will not be exactly the same in each situation, but caring for orphans is not for a select few. It's the work of the church. It's what gospel-transformed people do. We care for orphans, and when we care for orphans, we're retelling our own story. How long do you want to be loved? It's forever enough. May God give us grace to continue to step forward to reflect his image.